Jed Rasula is a professor in the Department of English at the University of Georgia and the author of Destruction Was My Beatrice. This is Jed Rasula. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to Dunk Tank. Uh, all right. I'm here with Jed Rasula. Thank you very much for joining me today. Glad to see you. Uh, so you, you wrote a very interesting book called, and I love this title, Destruction Was My Beatrice. Data and the unmaking of the 20th century. This is uh, this is this is a very powerful title. Where, where, where is this coming from? Well, the 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 subtitle is the publishers. So uh, you know, the data and the unmaking of the 20th century is one of those kind of things that publishers like to to stick on books. And this has happened to me several times where publishers have inverted what I had as the title and made yep. it into the subtitle, or you know, similar things. Um, but destruction was my Beatrice is a uh, is a phrase that the 19th century French poet Stéphane Mallarmé uh, wrote in a letter to a friend of his when he was kind of descending into a, I can only describe it as a kind of cosmic oblivion. I mean, you know, a sense mm -hmm. of the, the, the evacuation of the world, uh, the sponging or expunging of, of the self, of individual personality identity, uh, you know, everything just sort of went by the wayside for him. And it was not for him, though, a despairing kind of thing. It was more like a, a, the inspiration of his whole vision of poetry and mm. his famous expression, the whole world will end up in a book. Um, but Destruction Was My Beatrice was just his way of acknowledging that in, in his writing, what he was doing was um, being inspired by um, by this act of destruction or effacement or erasure. Um, so his poems are so tightly compacted and put together that they're, as one scholar has said, that they're um, uh, untranslatable uh, even into French, hmm. which is the language that he's using. Uh, and so it, it, reading his poems often feels like going to a, a mineralogical museum and looking at some of the encrustations that you get in the various kinds of stones and minerals and, and the extraordinary vividness of it and, and just the sheer, you know, the fact that you're looking at lumps of matter that are just so different than what you see in the backyard uh, or on the surface of the earth. Uh, so at any rate, uh, Mallarmé was, uh, was an inevitable influence on anybody who could read French in and was interested in poetry in the early 20th century. And I think all the Dadaists were in that, in that generation. Uh, and maybe not all of them were readers of his, but it, I mean, even people like Picasso were indebted to Mallarmé. Yeah, it is interesting to see how some of these big names, as we talk about Dada here, some of these big names uh, were influenced uh, by Dada or people who came before that, that influenced Dada. And uh, this movement doesn't really get sort of its due, at least in the minds of most lay people. I mean, most people are aware of surrealism. Most yeah. people know of Salvador Dali and all these things. Um, but the characters of Dada have had a huge impact. I mean, just sort of the ripples out of it are, uh, they, they touch on a lot of art that we see today. And I wanna get into that, but um, your book sort of takes this from uh, beginning where, uh, I, I guess, would you say Dada began, unlike a lot of art movements, you can kind of pinpoint like physically where it began in this uh, cabaret Voltaire in Zurich? Exactly. What, yeah. what was that That's all about? It. In 1916. Um, and, you know, the significance of, of that more than anything else is, is that it was a community of, of refugees from the war. Uh, you know, uh, all of them in one way or another were impacted by uh, uh, conscription, military conscription, or in some cases having been forced into the military and served. So, um, you know, the, the most famous instance is, is George Gross in Berlin, who went into the army and ended up having a kind of nervous breakdown. Um, and it definitely fueled the kind of fury-ridden uh, almost cackling uh, caricatures that he, he made after the war of the 
the German bourgeoisie and the moneyed class and, and the, the, the whole world around them. Um, and so, you know, those kind of experiences, even though you wouldn't think being in the military in, in wartime would be, um, would count as like job experience for being a Dadaist, I, I think it really was in uh, a number of cases because uh, in addition to uh, uh, George Gross, you also have um, down from Cologne, Ernst, uh, Max Ernst, and um, from Paris, uh, Paul Elouard. And later on, Paul Elouard and Max Ernst um, discovered that they had been basically shooting at each other across the lines at the same location at the same point in time during the war. And, and then they became, you know, fast friends after the war. Uh, so, you know, that this kind of military experience determines the personality in, in the same way that the people who were at Cabaret Voltaire, like Hugo Ball and Hans Arp, who didn't have any military experience, um, th their experience was being anti-war at a time when the world was universally pro-war and, and uh, fanatically so, despite all of the slaughter after two years of, of the war. And so they were in exile in neutral Switzerland and all having various sorts of background with combinations of, the, of uh, theatrical experience and, and experience in the art world uh, and some in performance, um, they just decided to find a place where they could open uh, a nightly venue that they called Cabaret Voltaire. Uh, for the centenary uh, in 2016, I had a, I hosted, I put together and hosted a Dada festival here in Athens um, that uh, included uh, the, the amazing <laughs> immortal jazz band, the Sun Ra Orchestra, uh, spelled A-R-K-E-S-T-R-A, -E Sun Ra uh, professed to, to have been beamed down in, I think, 1924 when he was born uh, to, the, to the planet Earth in order to enlighten it on the ways of the, the cosmos. And he called his orchestra, which he had from the 1940s until his death in the 1990s, uh, the orchestra. So, you know, the, the image of the ark after the flood. So it was kind of a, a, a salvational uh, enterprise that, and and it really worked out that that way in his life too. I mean, he his was a band that that took like a lot of junkies in, which was endemic to the jazz world back in the fifties and sixties, and used it as a place of rehabilitation. You know, they joined the band to kick the habit, and many of them um, were still performing half a century later. And in fact, when I had the the band here in Athens, uh, one of the members of the band. Um, whose name I'm forgetting at the moment, but he was, I think, 87 years old, and he did a bat flip from a standing position on stage <laughs> as a part of this Dada festival. Uh, and in that festival, we also found a local bar called Flickr Bar that um, has, it's a small bar with an adjoining room. And in the adjoining room, that people do performances there. It's just about the right size for poetry readings, really. Yeah. Uh, but it turned out to be, from my research, almost exactly the size of Cabaret Voltaire. Um, and so we could actually get about, uh, well, at Cabaret Voltaire, they kind of squeezed people in because the management wanted to make money. He wasn't making money off any entertainment charges or anything like that, but just by selling yeah. beer. So, you know, he, he, if even, even though here in Athens, we had probably 20, 22 people in the audience, uh, in a space that in Zurich, they probably managed to squeeze 50 in. Um, but then the stage was the same size and the stage was just big enough to incorporate a, um, a balalaika band from, orchestra, uh, from uh, uh, actually I'm wondering where did, I, I guess they came from Atlanta, but I'm not sure about that. But at any rate, they came and, you know, it was like six or seven balalaika players, different sizes of balalaikas on this stage and they could just fit on the stage um, and then there were other performances also let, let, let me ask you something i mean this uh one of the things that may be helpful for people who are listening to this and say okay dada what the hell is that right. it's actually kind of a hard question to answer because so many like of the people in the beginning 
uh, and who were in the Dada world, they would give, I mean, it almost sounds like uh, Zen monks and how they talk about, you know, oh, if you think you have found Zen, that is not Zen. And, you know, whatever a Dada is, is someone who is against Dada, like, okay, Mm-hmm. Is there a clear way of saying like, what this thing is? Uh, probably not. <laughs> but there, there are ways to talk about it with uh, a kind of with a kind of quizzical approach. That is, what what were people doing, and what were they expecting to happen because they were doing it? Mm-hmm. Um, all of them, as I said, had some kind of like arts background. And so it's natural enough in the neutral city or country of, of Switzerland in, in Zurich during the war that the point of their coming together was to pursue their similar interests. And so that meant that they, for those who had been making visual art before uh, or some kind of constructions, reliefs, anything like that, even doing weaving, that they would continue along that path and keep doing what they'd been doing, except now they were doing it in constant interchange with their fellow group of, of Dadaists. Um, they, they only uh, came up with this notion of, of being a Dada after they had been doing the Cabaret Voltaire performances for a while. At Cabaret Voltaire, because it was a nightly venue for them, they were using it almost as a kind of like a slow motion anthology in mm-hmm. uh, you know, real time. So they didn't have TV then, they didn't even have radio then, but they could sit on a stage or make successive appearances on a stage and read stories out loud, which they did. Uh, I mean, these are long stories by the Russian writer Gogol uh, reading a 40 page story that probably requires that people sit there sipping their beer for an hour and a half. Uh, So, you know, it wasn't a series of little skits or or anything like that. So it was really a kind of a, they would show pictures they would perform plays, they would read prose fiction, uh, and then sometimes they would make statements or do things that led to their eventually doing manifestos. But in the case of Dada, manifestos don't really come into the picture until really 1918. So two years uh, after of Dada in Zurich, in which Dada had among other things, an art gallery and a performance space separate from Cabaret Voltaire. Uh, and they were running these things as purportedly as businesses to try to make enough money for them, for the little collective to live on. And it just didn't work out that way. And so by 1918 and, and at the end of the year when the war was over, uh, it was possible for anybody who was part of that community to leave and go someplace else, to go back to Germany, to go to, to Paris, which many of them did, which is how Dada got from Café uh, Cabaret Voltaire to uh, to Paris, and then others went to Germany and connected with Germans who ended up in Berlin, where a, a much more aggressive uh, and political kind of Dada uh, was born during the uh, the, the German uh, Spartanist uprising and the German the Civil War in in Berlin uh, between the Bolsheviks and the uh, and the, the conservatives who eventually prevailed. Mm. Uh, but the Dadaists were very much on the Spartacist side and several of them uh, became members of the, uh, the Communist Party and remained that way for the rest of their lives. Yeah, it, it's interesting when you talk about the political angle of this, like uh, one of the things that George Gross, who you mentioned earlier, uh, you, you quote him in the book saying something like, uh, the child's doll, doll or like a colorful rug is a, a, a much more notable expression than some ass who wants to put himself in oil forever in a salon. And yeah. I, I love that quote and I love that you bring it up because it does capture a lot of different elements of Dada, which is like this urgency, like looking at like a, a found object and being like, this is art too. Uh, it also captures this anger uh, kind of this spite and uh, also this sort of like flattening of this idea of high and low art. Uh, why, why was that important? Well, the Dadaists were all um, iconoclasts. I, I would call them intuitive or instinctive iconoclasts. That mm-hmm. is, they didn't develop a, a theory about uh, being anti-establishmentarian or against 
institutions and organizations. They were all just instinctively that way. And so that was one point for all of them to come together and feel a sense of affinity and, uh, you know, fellow loyalty in a way, because they all had this, this iconic, iconoclastic uh, temperament and, and streak. And so the, uh, yeah, all of them were repudiated uh, what they regarded as a bourgeois institution, which was easel painting. And that's painting done exactly in that commercial vein where you're getting uh, commissions for doing portraits of wealthy people uh, or doing genre scenes that can be sold in galleries to a, a broader market. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, in other words, painting or, or art as a, as a, uh, as a profession uh, in this kind of mercantile sense. And so because they didn't really have aspirations to be in that market, they created their own mutual, mutually involved uh, network of, of associations so that, and, and this is very characteristic of, of most avant-garde, regardless of whether the data or not, is that they, you know, it's, it's a group of outsiders and being outside means that you're just not integrated into robust communities of, of uh, commercial exchange or anything like that. So it means that you're creating a world unto yourselves and your kind, your kind of people. And so you exchange art, your productions with them. If somebody comes into a little bit of money, they might sponsor the publication of a book of poetry. And of course, that book of poetry will have five or six woodcuts uh, uh, or maybe, you know, line drawings by an artist like Hans Arp or George Gross. Um, and so they populate each other's worlds in this way. And it makes for a very enriching artistic matrix, I think. That's one of my motivations for writing the book, because I think part of my sense of direction in writing the book was sparked off coming across something that somebody had observed in, I think, probably the 1980s, looking back on, you know, like whatever happened to Dada, that kind of perspective, because no, people weren't talking much about Dada. There was been, there had been a, a huge retrospective called uh, Dada and Surrealism uh, at the Museum of Modern Art in 1968. But that was, you know, by the 80s, it was getting to be nearly 20 years on. And uh, there really hadn't been much, a few local regional exhibits in European museums uh, and something in Tokyo. But, you know, there was not a, a high level of awareness. And the comment that, that set me in motion was the observation that the Dadaists did not, were not great painters, say. Right. Uh, so they, they couldn't coexist in the same class as, as uh, Picasso or Matisse or, you know, somebody like that. Um, so it took a long time for people to recognize that Dada was kind of the collective authorship of one of the most extensive and formidable bodies of artistic work in the 20th century. Mm -hmm. And as a collective authorship, it definitely supersedes the work of any individual artist that you can pick out from the rest of the century. You know, maybe only Picasso was as endlessly fertile and inventive as the Dadaists, but the Dadaists had the advantage of coming after uh, Picasso had been a mature uh, and really highly respected artist for a dozen years or, or so. So, you know, he was part of the foundation that they built on. And the kind of things that he made available was the sense that you could just pick up any kind of rubbish. And, you know, you, you could have um, a coat hanger and a piece of plywood and, and a bit of newspaper and like Picasso, put it together and call it guitar. And anybody looking at it can recognize it looks kind of banged up, but it's, it certainly qualifies as the shape of a guitar. Right. And the dots, you know, really responded affirmatively to that. You know, they didn't, they recognized him as a really, for, as a formidable force. They had affinity with the, the underside of Picasso's work, not the, not the canvases, but the stuff made out of uh, urban detritus. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious about this because um, this sort of notion of like anything can be art. I want to talk about Marcel Duchamp, um, but th there's something that he did that I think at the time was very innovative and interesting and artistic, 
which was uh, his his fountain. The when, when he took the urinal and he put it on its side and signed it Armut, and you know, sort of put it in a museum or in a gallery, saying like, oh, like this this too could be art, or is this art? It's like, and, and raising these questions. Um, in a way that, you know, you look at the urinal and it is like this porcelain thing. So it's like, okay, maybe this kind of is like a sculpture, but like, did this person make this? They signed their name on it. So clearly they're claiming it somehow. It, and this had not, something like that had not been done before. But did you see there was at Art Basel in like Miami, there was this banana taped to the wall. Did you see this? No, no. Okay, well, it, it was a banana taped to the wall, and it sold for like $60,000. And then someone came up and like ate the banana as like, ooh, you know, this is, this is the twist. And they were sort of repeating when asked, why did you do this absurd thing? They were sort of repeating the same sort of questions that Duchamp had asked in that work of art and saying like, oh, well, we're putting this in the gallery to say, you know, could this be art? You know, is it? And all, and it just felt like, feels to me like a lot of what Dada was doing was almost like the conclusion of centuries of art history where it was taking down the rules that previous generations had built. Um, and then just sort of like they found the ruins they finally found the ruins and it was really interesting, but now there's a lot of art today that's being made that almost feels like a pale imitation of this or like stomping on these ruins. Do you feel what I'm saying at all? Oh yeah. I mean, it's, it's something that is, has happened in recurring cycles since the 1950s, really. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, when Robert Rauschenberg started making what he called his combines, these enormous uh, collage-like compilations of, of materials, the, the first of which, or one of the first of which was his bed, just as he had left it, as it when he got up in the morning, you know, so an unmade bed with very ruffled covers that has the imprint of, of a body having been supine on it for the previous eight or 10 hours, um, and uh, nailed it to a big board and, and had it set upright, it was vertical rather than horizontal, so that, and, and he epoxied the things like the, the things into place so it would be, you know, stuck together and, and not just the, the blankets fall in a heap if you turned it upside down or upright. Um, and at the time that he did that, he really didn't know anything about Dada. So he had come by very similar processes of reacting to abstract expressionism, which had been the heroic style of post-war painting, uh, Jackson Pollock and Barnett Newman and, and Mark Rothko and, and those people, um, that by the mid-1950s, a, a next generation New York artist, uh, he was from Texas actually, uh, Robert Rauschenberg, tried to avoid going into that painterly trap in the same way that the Dadaists did, by just using whatever was at hand. And in his case, it happened to be in his own bedroom and to be his own bed. So, you know, it's, it, it personalizes what for the Dadaists was somewhat impersonal in the sense in Kurt Fitters, for instance, who was an extraordinary uh, like magpie, urban magpie, you know, wherever he traveled, he would roam with a big sack looking for things on the street that he would toss into his sack or into his pockets, take, it, take those things home and they would be part of a large stash of raw materials that he would use to make his collages and his assemblages. Uh, and the assemblages are, are, can be pretty huge. Uh, one of the most extraordinary art exhibits that I ever saw was at the Museum of Modern Art in, I think, 1986. Uh, perspective, and it was enormous. Uh, I went into it thinking, I knew a fair amount of, of Schwitter's work, but I went into it thinking that it probably can't be more than three rooms because, you know, they're just, I don't think they, there's that much to, to show, really. And so I went through three rooms and I saw that we were still in the earliest stages chronologically of his career. And I, I realized, boy, there's going to be more of this. And man, I didn't, it was about three hours later before I got to the final room, which was, a, uh, I think, 
maybe 15 or 16 rooms. And at that point, I decided I had to go in all over again. So I went through it twice and basically spent about six hours going through this. And it was just like a fantastic assemblage of what I have characterized as urban tide pools. Uh, and a lot of them are, in fact, displayed horizontally with a, like a, a plexiglass top on it. So, you know, you're looking down through something that, that um, just looks like if you were walking in, in Times Square or something after, uh, after New Year's Day or New Year's Eve celebration, you just, wherever you looked, it would just be litter from the night before. And uh, Schmitter's assemblages are like that, uh, except it's, even though it's made out of litter, they're all uh, extraordinarily well composed. And so they're, they're very pleasant to look at, even as they kind of document the the effluvia of urban life in the early 20th century. Oh, uh, you're look, yeah. yeah, thank you. Um, for a guy like Duchamp, one of the things that is uh, interesting for that time, and I, I had a conversation with a, a composer recently talking about uh, uh, the Rite of Spring mm -hmm. and uh, how that caused this big ruckus at the time. And you listen to it now, and it is an interesting piece of music, but I, I don't feel compelled to fling my chair like audience members at the time. For a painting of his, Nude Descending a Staircase, that was displayed at the Armory Show in New York, it almost became like a meme of its day, the, the amount of parodies that it, it generated. Why was this so shocking to people? Um, it, because at the time that people, well, the thing about the Armory Show is that it was originally intended as a showing of, of uh, contemporary American art. And the show was almost completely put together when somebody who had been to Europe advised one of the three uh, organizers of the Armory Show that they better think twice about showing this work without going to Europe and informing themselves about what had been going on there really for the last 30, 35 years. Uh, and, and, and it is the case that, that people in America just had no idea about uh, uh, the Fauves, uh, even the symbolists in the late 1990s, the Fauves, uh, and, then the, and then Cubism. Uh, so they were just ignorant of, of all of that. And, and German expressionism, and nobody had, no American artists had, had seen any of this stuff. Mm -hmm. And for anybody seeing those works, they would, they would just over, completely overmaster the American production at that time. And even though there were many, many more works by American artists than by these Europeans, everywhere the show went in New York and Chicago and Cambridge, Massachusetts, it, um, it was the foreign works that got all the attention. Uh, there was a voluminous amount of writing on the different appearances of the Armory Show and the American artists are almost never mentioned. But the one person who was a resident in New York and while he was not American, he was French, uh, produced the, the, thing to, the two things that were the most salient contributions to the Armory Show. And those were Fountain, and um, nude descending a staircase. Uh, I, I, except, not, it, let me erase that. They were not uh, contributions to the same show. The uh, fountain was to it was two years later to the Independence uh, show in New York. Uh, and the way that came about is that Duchamp was on the hanging committee of an organization that had been created to let anybody who was an artist show their work at this big assemblage. And all I had to do was to pay a $5 entrance fee. And then they could, you know, they could hang a work. Uh, um, and Duchamp uh, saw the fountain in a, uh, uh, a store of, of plumbing equipment. Uh, and Duchamp was just very interested, like most Europeans were, they came to the United States and they just saw extraordinary machines 
that you just didn't commonly see in Europe. And they loved to go to any place where they could see airplanes or airplane parts being assembled or you know any kind of factory or sales shop where you could see modern technology right off the shelf. And they marveled at these things. And Duchamp was one of those people. And on this walk home one day, along with uh, Walter Conrad Ahrensberg, and uh, I, can't, I can't remember who the third person was, he, he said, let's duck in here for a minute and uh, got and bought this urinal and carried it back to his place. He signed the name R. Mutt on the bottom. He turned it uh, upside down. Uh, and he anonymously submitted it to the, to the, the jury that he was a member of uh, for, the, for the show. And it caused such consternation among the other committee members. Um, and he and, and a, a friend of his on the committee insisted that uh, R. Mutt, whoever he was, ha having duly paid his $5 entrance fee, was entitled to have his work displayed. And it just freaked out the rest of the committee and they refused to have it, have it admitted into the, into the galleries. At that point, Duchamp took the, um, without anybody knowing of his, except Walter Conrad Ehrensberg, um, who helped him in this. Um, so after it was dismissed, uh, Duchamp took it to Alfred Stieglitz's uh, 291 gallery in Midtown Manhattan, where Stieglitz, uh, a veteran photographer, uh, photographed the fountain in front of a painting by uh, the American painter Marsden Hartley. And, um, and then that photograph was printed in a number of a data periodical called The Blind Man, in which uh, it in also included uh, an anonymous statement that, uh, that's that gave the, the world the first written down statement of, of conceptual art. And so the thing about the fountain is that it's it's not the object that is the art, it's it's the thought, it's the gesture. Uh, Duchamp was was very much against retinal art, uh, and so he had again that affinity and with the Dadaists. For people, retinal art, you mean art you can see with your eye? Yeah, that the point of it is is how it looks, and what it makes your eyes do, and what you perceive with your eyes. And Duchamp was of a lineage that, that derisively referred to uh, artists who, who painted for to stimulate the art of sight were just like dumb beasts. Uh, you know, they, they weren't doing anything more than just sort of chewing the cud. And so uh, this is how conceptualism came, came to be. And the first step in conceptualism, to go back to that other work of, of Duchamp's that you mentioned, was a new descending a staircase because he had started out as a painter in, in France before he came to uh, uh, New York, uh, just coincidentally in time for the Armory show. Um, and he had uh, you know gone through his assimilation of cubism um, and was looking for ways to, to advance, to kind of take what was there in cubism, which is a, in a kind of to break things down into little bits that have a kind of a collective rhythmic force. Um, and, and he recognized that something like that was being done in photography that hadn't really been done in painting yet. And uh, that has to do with the chrono photography that had been developed by Moorbridge in, uh, in the United States and by Marais in, in Paris, and he knew the Parisian version. And Marais, you know, had stop action ti a timing device on a camera that was, you know, an action that you needed to have the shutter pressed, but he worked out a mechanism to set the thing up on a tripod and then would have people and sometimes animals do things. And he couldn't take, this is pre-cinematic, so he couldn't take photographs, but he could take a succession of pictures. So like, um, a series of a, uh, a horse jumping over a hurdle could be like 60 still pictures in a row. So you could see every little incremental upward tilt of the, of the horse sending the, oh, my head here, <laughs> uh, going over the, uh, the hurdle and then landing. And that would be the arc of the series of pictures. So that's basically what he did with uh, Nude Descending a Staircase. Uh, you know, he could have taken a photograph, but he painted it instead. 
And in a way, that was the concept involved there. Here's something that had already been done and done better uh, and more efficiently in photography. Uh, but what way to demonstrate the absolute futility of easel painting than to do a painting of something that already had been exceeded and, and existed in a superior version in photography? So it's almost as if he's suggesting, here's a painting, but it's as a painting, it's useless. As an image, it's useless. You can get much better resolution by actually having a, you know, a, a nude descending a staircase and a series of stop motion things. In 1950, 1950 or 51, there was a, a profile of Duchamp in Life magazine, which I actually I have in the other room. Uh, the cover story was a profile of Dwight D. Eisenhower. Uh, who had just was on the verge of becoming president or maybe had just become president. But it was a big spread on Duchamp and um, he offered to pose for um, a photo, uh, uh, a chronolog this chronological photo sequence uh, nude for uh, Life magazine and they politely declined. Uh, so they just reproduced a photograph of the actual painting. Uh, but they did a few uh, visual, they played with the visual images a bit in the presentation. So not they didn't really doctor that, but they, but they made it seem interactive with the painting somehow. Um, yeah. I mean, do you think also though that Duchamp, I've seen some of his like early drawings and I have to say they're not like spectacular. He's not like a great draftsman. Um, do you think part of this was like a guy like Picasso, I can really respect the fact that he was painting images that were not, you know, when people say things like, oh, my six-year-old could do that. Right. Like, oh, okay. Go and see what Picasso was painting when he was six. It's actually really good and like really realistic adults. Most adults couldn't paint like that. Yeah. And so he had that ability, but he subverted it. It seems like in the case of Duchamp, he didn't really have that ability. Well, I, I mean, I would say that, yeah, I agree that he didn't have uh, Picasso's level of uh, draftsman versatility uh, in that way. But, you know, I, I mean, all of his early paintings are, are well executed and, and really interestingly composed. You know, he, he, there's no period of Duchamp where there are sort of clumsy attempts to do society portraits or, or even slightly avant-garde versions of portraits or anything like that. Yeah. He was always interested in um, working out, working away at the concept behind the act of painting. And so it's almost as if, I, I don't think it started this way, but you know, there's not a, a large body of work of painted work by Duchamp. I, I mean, I haven't counted up the number of works, but, you know, maybe two dozen at most. Uh, that's not a lot. That's, an, you know, other artists were producing two dozen canvases in a, you know, in a month uh, if they were, you know, really having a, a field day at it. Yeah. That's all that Duchamp did over a period of about uh, eight or 10 years. And so it's more that, that he was investigating the activity of painting. Uh, and it was while investigating that act, he came upon the understanding that, that the act of painting in, a, in, in addition to being a form of physical activity is also a kind of mental activity. And it can either engage the eye or reach out to engage the mind and that often engaging the eye was an obstacle to engaging the mind because of the kind of the superficial um, accessibility of paintings. You know, you, you can, even if you're very much into painting, uh, you know, as I have been for 60 years, uh, you know, I can still walk through a gallery and, and have a dismissive relation to a particular canvas that I've not looked at for more than five seconds. Um, you know, sometimes I'll take a second look. So, you know, five more seconds might be added. May, if I indulge it, you know, maybe it'll get 30 seconds. But there are things that, that I just, you know, I realize that this engages nothing that, that uh, gives me anything to think about or, or work with in any way. Whereas uh, something else that doesn't, and the Dadaists did a lot of these kind of things too. They produced works of images of things that 
in and of themselves often could not were not very interesting. Yeah. So they deliberately chose uninteresting objects, and in part the way surrealism developed, largely out of the ranks of Dadaists in Paris at that time, was that surrealists increasingly were formed by Dadaists who, who wanted to have more interesting objects at hand than whatever just casually came to hand uh, in this posture of, of indifference or non-interference. Um, yeah, that's... I like that notion because there's definitely there's times where I go through a gallery and I almost feel like I'm just walking through it. Yeah. And, you know, you look around and you kind of get the images and, you know, see like, oh, well, that's nice. That has like a nice composition, et cetera. But you're right. It's not like doing anything for my mind. But I think what, what you just pointed out there with the surrealists sort of taking uh, something that was really interesting about Dada and then moving it into a more like exciting visual arena. Yeah. Like, um, I, I mean, do you feel like that was almost, because a lot of the way that people have talked about Dada, if they talk about it at all, is purely as a precursor to surrealism. But do you feel like they almost kind of screwed themselves in the sense that if your whole thing is like we're anti-art we're anti you know visual uh beauty or whatever then uh then ultimately people are gonna be like even artists at a certain point are gonna get bored yeah i mean it um I think the easiest way to, to put that is to say that Dada knowingly entered into the world with an expectation of limited shelf life. Mm. Uh, so that's in part why they were so interested in ephemerality and why there are records of so many Dada works that, that don't exist, that, that have disappeared, were, were seen by many people at the time, written about, uh, studied, uh, ruminated over, inspired, uh, but we don't have them to see uh, because the, the Dadaists themselves were sometimes just willfully negligent of their own productions uh, mm -hmm. or in other cases, you know, accidents happen. So things just got lost um, or in other cases. And a very good example of this is a, a photograph by Man Ray that he took. Um, I actually have it on the table here because I was looking at this book before we started this uh, in 1920. It's called uh, Dust Breeding. And it's a photograph of, Man, of, of Duchamp's large glass, which he had abandoned at that point, and it had left lying flat on the floor of his studio for uh, like a year and a half. And the thing was completely covered with dust. Uh, and Man Ray took a photograph from an angle, kind of like if you're a dog looking over a, a you know, a, a, a big piece of wood, that angle is, that's the angle you would see. and. So it's fascinating because the photograph, you look at it and you think, God, I mean, this looks like a, mar a landing zone on Mars or something. So, you know, it's a NASA photograph. Uh, and you, know, it's, you don't even notice uh, or, or immediately think that it's a, a photograph of dust on a piece of glass. Uh, but that's where the, the title helps out, Dust Breeding. Um, and so that's a, that's a work in which the evanescent, nature of dust on a piece of glass can't really be stored away like a physical object. Uh, it's very hard to cement glass, uh, <laughs> uh, right. dust into place. Uh, you know, the closest that Duchamp got to that was to have a centimeter of Parisian air uh, vacuum sealed in a bottle at a pharmacy in Paris and then brought it back to New York and gave it to someone as, a, as, a, as an art object gift. Um, you know, and so that's the closest to uh, packaging dust that, that Duchamp got. Uh, but, you know, they recognize that, that media differ and every medium has its own opportunity to do something that benefits another medium as well. And so you can take a photograph of dust breeding and you don't last or must you know, the photograph suffices. So the photograph is like the thought of the object in a way. The photograph gives rise to thought, even just about what you're seeing in this particular case. 
And so the sense of defamiliarization there that was really very much a Dada gesture was continued even more avidly by the surrealists. And the important thing is that many, uh, a number of the Dadaists became surrealists. So Hans Arp and, and Max Ernst became, you know, formal members of the surrealist group uh, throughout the 1920s and 30s. Um, and, um, and had a, a kind of an, an autonomy or an independence because when, when surrealism was formed out of the ashes of Dada uh, in 1924, it was, it was led by Andre Breton, who was a, a poet. And so his whole notion of surrealism was that this was gonna be a literary movement. And it was gonna be a set of investigations that would lead to literary productions of various kinds. Uh, uh, you know, a, a public uh, log of, of writing of people's dreams, um, uh, a magazine, a series of, you know, publications of poems and books and so forth. And then it wasn't until a couple of years, well, actually it was around the time that surrealism started that certain right, uh, artists just happened to be doing things in Paris that caught the eye of the surrealists. And one of the first of these was uh, the Catalan painter, Joan Miro, who had already embarked on this, this product, this project of, as he put it, assassinating painting. Hmm. You know, so he was, he had adopted the anti-art thing from Dada, even though he was not a, he was like a latecomer. Dada was breaking up by the time he arrived from, uh, from Barcelona to, uh, to Paris. Uh, but he got to know the people. Uh, Tristan Zara, for instance, was a good friend of his, uh, and Hans Arp as well. Um, and, um, and so he was having exhibits there and the, and the people who were just in the process of becoming surrealists started seeing his work. And they had already seen uh, an exhibit a couple of years earlier when Dada was still going uh, really the, it, at its peak and in, in, in 1920, uh, there had been uh, a great exhibit of, uh, of Man Ray at which one of Man Ray's most famous objects was uh, bought just just before the show went on and and with the help of, uh, of a friend, um, Man Ray bought a, 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 an, a clothing iron and and uh, glued a, a series of, of thumbtacks uh, right up and down the, the vertical axis of, of the thing and then took a photograph of it. Uh, the object itself uh, was eventually lost and he created another one but it's the photographs that have, have, again, as with a lot of works of Duchamp, transmitted the object uh, and stood in for the object. So, you know, things like uh, Duchamp's fountain, even though he uh, authorized replicas, uh, a multitude of replicas uh, in the 1930s uh, to go to museums so that everybody, it increases the chances around the world that somebody who's interested in art in their lifetime will have been in a museum where there is an authorized version, life-size version of the, of, uh, the fountain by, uh, by Duchamp. But all of them are authorized reprints. They're, they're, they're Duchamp's prelude to Andy Warhol with his Brillo boxes. You know, before Andy Warhol, Duchamp did that with his own works. Yeah, and, and one of the things I like about that is something that a friend of mine who's not an artist, who's an engineer, was saying was that, okay, let's say we get to a point where we can take a Monet and perfectly replicate it. So each streak of paint is exactly in place. Uh, let, let's say just for the sake of argument, down to the atom. Well, at that point, if you're saying, I want the original, aren't, aren't you really just being kind of, uh, I don't know, precious about this? You know, it, it isn't the, to, to the point, I guess, of the, a guy like Duchamp, isn't the point supposed to be like the idea or what's hitting you rather than like the exact, uh, you know, object itself. Like in the case of the, this, this porcelain statue, it, it does not matter w whether it's the original or another copy, et cetera. Right. I mean, there's something that you said in there about uh, assassinating painting. And I, I want to understand what exactly Besides this notion of like, oh, we don't like retinal art, what did they want to assassinate? Uh, in, uh, in the case of, I mean, that was the phrase of uh, Joan Miro. 
the Catalan artist. And, and his, his understanding of that at the time was that, because he was a very proficient painter, he had laboriously, you know, undergone instruction as a, as really as an early, beginning from an early teenager uh, into his 20s in Barcelona in art academies and, you know, taught all of the tricks of the trade and was, you know, a very studious artist. And he had developed a, a, an interesting and original style that, you know, absorbed the lessons of cubism without making things look cubistical in, in any way, but ruffled the landscapes he was painting a little bit. So he was, and then he went to Paris and he was, he was proficient, but he was embarked on a direction that he realized that was, um, could be avoided because he went to Paris and saw an art world. You know, there's a little bit of an art world in Barcelona at that time, but Paris was the capital of the world capital of art. And when he got to Paris, he realized it was an art world that was, you know, that was kind of like the United Nations or something, except it was all galleries instead of, uh, uh, you know, individual countries. Uh, but that there were a lot of galleries and, and they were all, uh, operated as businesses and they were catering to this market of, of people with the means to buy art. Um, and so it was very tied into cycles of fashion. Uh, and all of that was the direction that he was going in with the kind of painting that he was doing. And he realized, I don't wanna be part of that world. I, you know, I wanna do artwork that just changes my mind. You know, there's this, there's this famous last line of a poem uh, uh, archaic statue of Apollo by the German poet Rainer Maria Rilke. Uh, it was published in uh, 1906. And the, the, it's, it's a meditation on a, a, a sculpture in the Louvre um, where uh, Rilke was living at the time, serving as uh, the sculptor Rodin's uh, personal secretary. And he wrote a book on Rodin. Uh, but he was adopting Rodin's style of studying things that he was sculpting. And so he, Rilke spent all of this time going to various kinds of places to observe very, very carefully, like a painter observing a scene in order to paint it, except he was doing the same thing in order to write poems uh, that, that are, have been referred to as dingedicta or thing poems. And so standing in front of this statue, uh, this ancient Greek statue in the Louvre, uh, you get a description of the figure that's there and then emanating from the eyes, the eyeless eyes, because it's a marble statue. Uh, so there's that haunting, you know, the, the, in, in marble, you don't have uh, uh, corollas there in the middle of the eye. You don't have lenses. It's all just blank. It's all white. Um, and so from the eyeless vision or gaze, as it's put in the poem, uh, the last line of the poem is a, a direct address, which every reader reading the poem feels as a direct address because it's in the, in the uh, second person uh, singular. Du musst dein Leben enden. You must change your life. Uh, and that is really one of the great uh, kind of artistic credos of, of the 20th century. And it's something that, that people practice like, like Miro who didn't even know the poem uh, or knew nothing of Rilke as a, as a, as a poet even. They, they had the same approach to their, their art. That is the, the art should be saying to them, you must change your life. And in turn, then it enables you to, to change the art into something that keeps telling you that. And so uh, Miro recognized that the only way to, to really be alive as an artist was to constantly to be to be developing all the time, you know. And 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 for him, a, a great master and forerunner was Picasso, who was a great friend of his in Paris and really set him up and got him going. And and Picasso was immediately inspired by Miro's art, and Miro knew it. And he, in turn, was you know was quite beholden to everything that that Picasso had done. Um, and he recognized that, that Picasso had just gone through so many uh, changes of style and developments in the uh, 24 years that he'd been in Paris, that it was, you know, that was near, that was most of, you know, Picasso was that much older than, than Miro, who was about 20 years older. Um, so, you know, he was, a, he was a real precedent. And 
the lesson that he that Miro got from Picasso was that the way to keep going was to continually be turning your back on on what you've already done, uh, or in a more aggressive way, overthrowing it or overturning it. In other words, if this worked before, let's do the opposite now. <clears throat> and so, in Moreau's case, that meant in throughout the the night, the rest of the 1920s, he was using destructive approaches in his paintings, uh, which is to say, he was doing things on canvas and to canvas that involved some kind of obliteration or denial. So instead of if he used oil paints for part of a canvas. Other parts of the canvas would have objects uh, seared into the canvas, tied in with a sailor's knot and a piece of string, uh, or stapled into place, or something like that. Or you could have, you know, a, a fork uh, sewn with lace onto uh, the painting of a table. Uh, you know, you you could you could do all of these things that 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 utilize different uh, kind of informal and unofficial and uncelebrated methods of making things to be experienced that weren't strictly things to be seen. I see. So when when uh, the phrase, you must change your life, yeah. in this case, an artist took it as being whatever that I've done, just it, it almost sounds like change for change's sake. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah. It is, I, but it's it's not for change's sake so much as development's sake. Uh, you know, there there are here's here's the uh, something that was very useful to me was told to me anecdotally, and then I found it in, in writing the the, the German English his, historian Isaiah Berlin uh, once divided humanity up into two personality types. Um, <coughs> It's like the tortoise and the hare, except it's not. Uh, and these are the hedge, the hedgehog, and um, and the rabbit. <clears throat> and the difference between them is the hedgehog burrows down, digs in, and rolls up in a ball, and totally occupies a space. But it's a very concise and finite space. So the 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 hedgehog is the kind of personality that knows everything there is to know about one thing. And then kind of ignores the heterogeneity of the world. Um, the the rabbit, on the other hand, is just constantly in motion, is always running around and encountering new things, and is constantly being energized and re-energized off the heterogeneity and the multiplicity of things. And so, the the painter or the writer, who is uh, you know a companion of the I, I'm sorry, I, I said rabbit, it's fox. The figure is fox. <laughs> uh, so, so the fox uh, is the, the kind of writer who uh, simply invents new things, uh, you know, regularly on a regular basis. You know, they're capable of developing for extended period, for years at a time, but eventually they, they come to an end where they sort of burn a bridge back to that thing which they had been doing. Uh, the most interesting case to me of a of this kind of formal uh, heterogeneity is the uh, the Portuguese poet Fernando Pessoa, uh, who uh, I just came back uh, last week from Lisbon and Barcelona, actually, uh, where I was seeing works by uh, Miro and reading uh, works by by Pessoa, and um, Pessoa. Uh, wrote poetry, but he was visited in 1914, shortly before the First World War broke out, by what he called the, you know, the, the highest moment of his life, an invasion of heteronyms. That is, suddenly he was occupied as if by another voice and a completely different personality and wrote extended sequences of poems by poets with several different names. Uh, Ricardo Reyes is one, uh, Alvaro de Campos is another one, uh, and um, uh, Alberto uh, Cairo is another one. Uh, and then a big prose book called the, Pro the Book of Disquiet by Bernardo Soares. And, and he presented all of these as heteronyms. And, and these heteronyms wrote articles and reviews of each other's work. They encounter even though they're, they're all Pessoa. Uh, as the literary critic Carol Bloom said, um, uh, 
all of uh, Portugal's um, best 20, uh, 20th century poets were by the same person. Um, um, we're at an hour here and I wanna take up your time. Uh, so I'm curious, where is Dada still, is the influence of it? I mean, I'm sure you would consider it to be still alive, but is there, is there anywhere to go with it from here or is it kind of a, like Latin, like a dead language? No, I, I, well, I mean, I think it's, 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 an, it's an imperishable encounter that will benefit your life if you give yourself up to it with the right kind of attitude. And, and I think that attitude a century later, and that's, this is in part why I wrote the book and wrote the book as the kind of book that it is, it's a history of Dada. It's a, history, it's a series of biographies of people and their interactions and their activities with some accounts of the things that they produced, but as much about the things that they did that are evanescent and are known only in reports and speculative embellishment. All of that is the history of Dada. That's all part of what Dada is. So Dada is not a collection of, of artifacts in, in museums, although museums have plenty of these things. Uh, Dada is also uh, huge troves of written documents, which was the, the, uh, the kind of the genius of the great Dada exhibition that I was at at its premiere in uh, 2006 in Paris. Uh, at the Centre Pompidou. It was an enormous thing. The version of it that came to the United States was uh, about a third the size of what it was in Paris. And the very first room, and the whole thing was in an enormous gallery without walls. Instead of walls, they hung black curtains as room dividers, making about 60 rooms, I think, of different sizes, each one with exhibits. And the very first room that you went in was a very long corridor. It felt like a high school... Uh, hallway that had nothing on one side, just a black wall, and on the other side, a long vitrine that was filled with, uh, with manuscripts, manuscript material, with probably displays of about a thousand pieces of paper, uh, a lot of envelopes and return envelopes and, and, and written documents, some type documents. And, and I spent, it was all in German and, and, and Paris that are both languages that I was uh, researching the book in. And I, I spent about the first two hours just reading as carefully as I could the stuff that was there because it was stuff I hadn't seen. It wasn't in any kind of edition of anything I knew about. So I was just reading this stuff without the aid of the dictionary because of course, you know, you go to an art exhibit and you don't think, well, maybe I should take my German and my French dictionaries with me. So, you know, that slowed the reading process. And also a lot of this, the, the things were written in a very small handwriting and even though it's in a vitrine and you can get your face right up against the glass, you know, the object itself might be a foot away because it's a tilting display pace behind the glass. So sometimes it's just really hard to see clearly even what it was. But that was a genius way of opening uh, an exhibit on Dada in one of the world's great uh, museums of modern art in Paris uh, to make you realize that you, you have to go through a lot of writing to get to the, the visual side of Dada in the first place. That Dada started out as a literary enterprise and then it gradually began to include artworks. Um, yeah, I, I, think, uh, I think that's a good note to end it on. Uh, the book, again, is Destruction Was My Beatrice. And Jed, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. It's been quite a pleasure to talk about this, uh, which I have not, given that the book came out in 2015, it's been, what, six years since the book came out, and I, I've only really looked at my own book recently if, if I was writing something else and thought that I might have made a reference to something that I wanted to get the reference to in the book, so I would look it up there to see what the source was. <laughs> there. Yeah. Well, uh, is, do you have a website, by the way? Uh, or any, I, any I don't. I'm on the verge of retiring. And one of the first things I'm going to do when I retire is, is to get a website. And what I'm doing lately is getting up, making PDFs or obtaining PDFs of 
my career full of publications there. I mean, my CV a list of publications is probably about 16 pages long, single spaced. So there's a lot of stuff there. And, you know, I mean, it might as well be easy, easy of access for anybody who's interested in, you know, seeing what I've written about. Absolutely. Um, and I have PDFs of most of the books that I put up there too. So, um, and then just links to, it's a, it's a curatorial thing that I've done a, a fair a bit of in my, in two of the books that I've published, which are anthologies, huge anthologies, each of them, you know, about six, over 600 pages, uh, Burning City, Poems of Metropolitan Modernity, which is all mostly visual poetry by the 20th century avant-garde, international, with a, a mountain of, of new translations of things that have never been translated before, and including a lot of data work. Um, and then the other one is called Imagining Language, and it's it's just kind of uh, an anthology, a compendium of peculiar language practices over the past 2,000 years. Uh, so, no. well, so, you know, doing doing something like that on an ongoing basis online appeals to me as a thing to do in retirement. Excellent. Uh, Jed, thanks once again. Um, cool. So I'm, I'm going to stop recording. Thank you to Jed Rasula, and thanks for listening to Dunk Tank. I'm Duncan Gammy. See you next time.